Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, Digital Divide. The OECD announced on October 12th that the 137 jurisdictions participating in the inclusive framework had narrowed down the options for taxing the digital economy. However, due to significant issues that remain, the deadline for the Digital Economy Project has been pushed back from the end of 2020 to mid-2021. Here to talk more about this highly anticipated package of reports just published by the OECD is Tax Notes Chief Correspondent Stephanie Sung Johnson and Contributing Editor Nana Amasarfo. Stephanie, Ama, welcome back to the podcast. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Dave. Why don't we start off from a brief background on how we got here? If you've been tracking developments in the taxation of the digital economy space, you're aware that the OECD has been leading efforts to rebuild the international tax system to ensure that one, digital activity is taxed, and two, corporations pay a minimum amount of tax no matter where they operate. And this project is sometimes called BEPS 2.0 because it follows up on action one of the BEPS project, which had focused on addressing the tax challenges of the digital economy. And to reach that goal, the OECD has been trying to herd the 137 member countries of the inclusive framework on BEPS toward agreement on a two-pillar proposal for updating the corporate tax rules for an increasingly digital and globalized world. And so Pillar 1 is generally considered the more radical of the two pillars because it proposes amending profit allocation and nexus rules to give market jurisdictions, i.e. where consumers are, the ability to tax residual profits of multinationals, and it signals a departure from the arm's length standard. And Pillar 2 calls for global minimum corporate taxation, which in itself is pretty radical. And we wouldn't have been talking about this maybe 20 years ago. Governments were hoping that this two-pillar solution that's now on the table would give them the right to tax digital companies that don't have physical presence in their jurisdictions and ensure that all corporations pay some tax somewhere. So that is where we are now. And along the way, it's been a very long process. This has been a question that has dogged governments for years, since the 1990s. And a big problem is that most of the companies that governments want to target are American. And when you are a country at negotiating table and everyone wants to tax your companies, it's a lot harder to come to some agreement in that way. So, And the U.S. is a pretty major player in the space. So, so it's been a pretty politically fraught process. Stephanie described all of that so perfectly. And I just wanted to add that just a few months ago, it wasn't even clear as to whether or not the OECD would be able to release these blueprints this month, given all of the controversy with the U.S. and its objections to Pillar 1. And then also a lot of the stress that governments have been facing due to the coronavirus pandemic. Right. If you look at this whole process, how many challenges can there be in the process? Seems like there's always something that's kind of slowing it down. So on Monday, we did get confirmation that this timeline would be pushed back to mid-2020 when governments really wanted something by the end of 2020. So I guess that brings us to what happened on Monday, October 12th. Monday, October 12th was a very busy day, which started for me at five in the morning (laughs) because the OECD held a press conference where they finally released the final versions of the two pillars. They call them blueprints. They started using a lot of this architectural jargon, you know, to kind of describe that they're using these blueprints to build this architectural, beautiful international tax system. It's it's a blueprint that provides a foundation, I believe was the mixed metaphor they were using. Yes, exactly. So what they published on Monday were the two blueprints for Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, plus an updated economic assessment of the two pillars. And how much is this going to bring in? So the OECD also published a public consultation document for a consultation period that runs until December 14th with a public consultation event in January 
2021. Now that we have the blueprint, what do we now know about Pillar 1? So as you might remember, we used to refer to the proposals in Pillar 1 as the unified approach, which drew from competing countries' views on how to tax and scope multinationals with digital activity. The unified approach used to refer to three components, amounts A, B, and C. And Pillar 1 does retain that three-part structure, but slightly differently. And now we're talking about amount A, which gives new taxing right to market jurisdictions over a portion of residual profits of Inscope M&E groups that have active and sustained participation in that market jurisdiction. We've got amount B, which represents a fixed return for the baseline marketing and distribution activities occurring in market jurisdictions that are in line with the arm's length principle. And then we've got dispute prevention and resolution mechanisms to enhance tax certainty. And there are still a lot of outstanding issues on the scope of amount A, like the quantum, which refers to the amount of residual profits to be allocated to a market jurisdiction to be taxed, and the scope, meaning what companies would be affected. But the blueprint does confirm some aspects of Mount A in particular. It'll apply to companies providing automated digital services, and it'll also apply to consumer-facing businesses. But again, outstanding questions about what that actually means and what those cover. Mount A will also have new nexus rules for determining which market jurisdictions get to tax Mount A. It'll have revenue threshold based on annual consolidated group revenue, along with a de minimis foreign in-scope revenues carve-out. Amount A would also have a loss carry-forward regime, and it'll also have a dispute resolution panel mechanism that will ensure that there's agreement among tax administrations about how Amount A would apply to a particular M&E group. Pillar 1 would also require countries to remove unilateral measures and refrain from introducing such measures in the future, but it's not clear what this means yet. Do they mean digital services taxes or other kinds of measures? like a significant economic presence provisions, equalization levies, withholding taxes? Does it mean diverted profits taxes like they have in the UK and Australia? This remains to be determined. And as I mentioned before, Pillar 1 is actually the more politically fraught of the two pillars for a lot of reasons. The biggest reason being the United States, again, the US doesn't want Pillar 1 to ring fence digital companies, which are mostly American, but a lot of other countries want to really just focus on digital companies like Google, Facebook, Apple. And the US also wants Pillar 1 to be implemented on a safe harbor base meaning companies could opt in in exchange for greater tax certainty. So those are two pretty big obstacles for agreement on Pillar 1. But in general, countries hope that Pillar 1 will discourage the proliferation of digital services taxes and ensure greater tax certainty, which is pretty important now that we're all dealing with the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. Amma, what are your uh, thoughts on, on what we know about Pillar 1 now? I also wanted to add that I think it's important to note that the OECD makes a pretty strong case within the Pillar 1 blueprint as to why the revenue threshold should not dip below 750 million euros. As we know, that threshold, that uh, proposed threshold amount has been pretty controversial for developing countries who say that number is simply too high and could cut out a lot of economic activity in their jurisdiction. But the OECD mentions pretty strongly here that the benefits of reducing that threshold may not be very robust. Before we get back to the interview, I'd like to tell you about a great new tool on the Tax Notes website. The Tax Notes team is proud to unveil document comparisons, now available for Treasury decisions. With one click, you will in moments have a red line showing you changes between proposed and final regulations. Comparing documents has never been easier. Check it out for yourself by going to taxnotes.com compare. That's taxnotes.com slash compare. Let's turn now to the Pillar 2 draft. What new information do we have about that? 
pillar two is supposed to ensure that large multinational businesses pay a minimum level of tax, no matter where they're headquartered or where they operate. Countries are proposing to do this through interlocking rules. And these are an income inclusion rule that gives a country the ability to include some foreign income in its tax base if that income is taxed below a minimum rate. And this is often described as being similar to the U.S. global intangible low tax income regime or guilty regime. It also includes the under tax payment rule that gives a country the ability to deny deduction or apply withholding tax a payment tax below a minimum rate. And this is sometimes described as being similar to the U.S. base erosion and anti-abuse tax or the BEAT. There's also a subject to tax rule that will change treated benefits for some income items where payments are under tax relative to the minimum rate. And there's also a switchover rule that would give a country the ability to change tax treaty implications for the profits of entities that are taxed below a minimum rate. So basically nothing's going to be taxed under a minimum rate. So what's different about this, we're no longer talking about the switchover rule as a separate component of Pillar 2 because now it's thought to support the income inclusion rule. So that's something different. And the blueprint reflects some key points that makes it clear that the income inclusion rule and the under tax payment rule are now grouped together to make up what we call the GLOBE rules, the global anti-base erosion rules. And we also know now that the income inclusion rule and the under tax payment rule would rely on a common tax base, which would be calculated using financial accounts prepared with accounting standards like international financial reporting standards or another standard that the M&E group parent uses for its consolidated financial statements. M&Es would determine effective tax rate, applying the tax base and covered taxes on a jurisdictional basis. And it will rely on that 750 million euro threshold that Amma mentioned earlier, just to, for the sake of simplicity and for administrative ease. The Pillar 2 blueprint also makes clear that there will not be any book-to-book and limited book-to-tax adjustments. And there won't be consensus agreement without a separate tax rule as part of Pillar 2, something that developing countries want. Even though Pillar 2 is coming more sharply into focus, there's still a lot of outstanding issues like the minimum rate. What's the minimum rate going to be? We've heard that maybe it'll be 12.5% to align with Ireland. It could be higher than that. I know that developing countries want it higher. And another big outstanding issue is how the guilty regime will coexist with Pillar 2, given the similarities between guilty and the income inclusion rule and the similarities between the beat and the under tax payment rule. So how are those going to coexist together? So that's going to be very interesting for countries to hammer out. So on Monday, we also got to see the impact assessments that we've been promised for a long while now. So how much money are we talking about these proposals raising? The numbers are very heavily caveated. I mean, the sources for data, how do you estimate how much money two theoretical pillars are going to bring into a, a government coffer? The OECD did, did its best and carried out some economic analysis with the economics department and found that broadly, pillar one and pillar two will bring in a total of 47 billion to 81 billion or 1.9% to 3.2% of global corporate income tax revenues. That's excluding the guilty regime. So if you take into account the guilty regime, those estimates increase slightly. We're looking at 56 billion to 102 billion or 2.3% to 4% of corporate income tax revenue raised. It's also worth noting that Pillar 1 doesn't really raise money per se. It just reallocates profits so countries can tax them. So both pillars are expected to result in some amount of money for most governments, but those numbers aren't really that precise at this point. What was really interesting though about the economic assessment is that 
the OECD has estimated a worst case scenario if digital services taxes were to proliferate. And Alma has a little more on that. So obviously, no one wants complexity, not multinationals and not the OECD either. But the OECD is saying that unilateral DSTs will be pretty harmful and could shrink worldwide GDP by over 1%. So in pure dollars and cents terms, we're looking at at least $1 trillion. And that's a really startling amount. But on the other hand, they're estimating that pillars one and two, despite all the complexity, will have what they say is a very slight negative impact on GDP. They're saying that the proposals will shrink that by less than a tenth of a percent. So really, the OECD is saying here, which would you rather have? We want to potentially shrink the world economy by one trillion dollars, or do we want to generate about a hundred billion in the best case scenario of tax gains? But what I find interesting is that, as Stephanie had mentioned earlier, Pillar 2 is expected to generate more revenue than Pillar 1. So if we look at the OECD's estimates, at the high end, Pillar 1 will bring in about $12 billion, and then Pillar 2 will bring in more than three times that amount. The OECD is estimating that at the high end, it could bring in $42 billion in direct revenue gains, and that's excluding gains from guilty or from reduced profit shifting. And so the OECD consultation asks for simplification on Pillar 2. And I think that Pillar 1 could also benefit from that kind of discussion as well, especially if it's not doing the heavy lifting here as illustrated by the OECD's revenue estimates. But I also think that whether or not all of this complexity will be worth it or maybe tolerable really depends on what the end result will be here. I mean, our pillars one and two, the opening bid for international tax reform, will these concepts be revised and revisited over time or are they the end destination? So speaking of the end destination, how much longer is this project going to go on? It started from action one of the BEPS project, and that was completed five years ago. And that morphed into this current digital economy project that seems to have its date being pushed back already. So mid-2021 is the earliest that we could see an agreement. But from there, more technical work will need to be done because the OECD is planning to create a new multilateral convention for Pillar 1. And then it's also planning to draft some model legislation and standard documentation and guidance for Pillar 2. And then it's also mentioned that it could potentially place some aspects of Pillar 2 in a multilateral convention. So all of these things will need to be written. And then, of course, inclusive framework countries will need to approve them and incorporate these measures into their national laws. So there will be an extended tail to this work past 2021. But as for when that end date will be, no one knows. Yeah. I think, Amma, you're right that there's a lot of work to be done, even if they do get agreement in mid-2021, because countries need revenue now. They're looking to raise revenues to pay for their coronavirus economic recoveries. So if you think about getting political agreement on this solution in mid-2021, what does that mean for implementation? Maybe earliest in 2021 for the really ambitious countries, maybe 2022. If you implement 2022, then you won't really see revenues until 2023. And in the meantime, what are you going to do with the public? Our tolerance of tax avoidance and corporate tax shenanigans, I guess you call it, will be very tested during this time when people are struggling. It's 
going to be very difficult, I think, to kind of stave off these unilateral measures and the temptation to implement unilateral measures in the meantime, while this global corporate tax overhaul is being implemented. I don't think this is going to be the last chapter of this saga. Well, speaking of the unilateral measures, we have seen a number of countries implementing digital services taxes, even though the U.S. strongly opposes them and is promising retaliation for them. But a lot of their plans have pushed the digital services tax to the end of this year, waiting on the OECD to come to some sort of agreement. Now, with that agreement being pushed, what does that mean for all these countries that have been waiting in the wings to implement their digital services taxes? Well, over the next few weeks and months, I think we could see a couple of things going into play here. So one, some governments may continue to keep these proposals on hold. Governments are still analyzing these proposals that were just issued on Monday. So not many have spoken about what their future plans will be, but that's definitely a possibility, keeping them on hold. Others may continue forward with the taxes that they've enacted. And then others thinking about DSTs may go ahead and enact that legislation. As Stephanie mentioned, we're looking at maybe 20. 23 for implementation. And a lot of countries do have revenue needs in light of the pandemic and even before that. So they may decide to go ahead and introduce those temporary measures. So we know that the European Union said that it will respect the OECD's new timeline, which is a departure from what President Ursula von der Leyen said at the beginning of September. She said that if the OECD failed to generate a solution, that the EU would move forward with its own unilateral digital services tax. That being said, I'm not surprised that the EU said that it will hold off and respect the OECD's timeline because the European Parliament last month released a list of tax measures that they would like to implement to fund the broader EU budget. And they included with that a timeline for when those revenue sources should be active. And within that timeline, they said that they were looking at 2023 for an EU-wide DST. So they already left a pretty healthy cushion for the OECD to implement a solution. Then we have the UK, which has its own DST. And on Monday, the UK House of Lords met right after the OECD released its blueprints. And a UK official who is the Undersecretary of State at the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, she said that the UK's DST will remain for the time being. She said good progress is being made on those negotiations. And once we reach common ground, then we can remove the DST. So for the UK, we're looking at business as usual. And then France announced that it will collect its DST in December. We're seeing a mixed bag of reactions to the OECD's announcement. But beyond that, we know that some, but not all African countries are thinking about about implementing their own DSTs while we wait for an OECD solution. So I think movement on that continent will definitely be something to watch. The African Tax Administration Forum just released a suggested approach to digital service taxation for governments that are thinking about embarking on that path. So now it's really time for governments to engage in a cost-benefit analysis. Now, this project is all being done under the mandate of the G20. How have they responded to the blueprints that came out this week? 
So the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors met yesterday, October 14th, and discussed the two pillars, among other things, and eventually issued a communique in which they expressed support for the ongoing work at the OECD and the new mid-2021 deadline, and vowed to keep working and to resolve their political differences, and actually placed the blame for the delay on the pandemic alone, which is interesting because in the documents released on Monday, the OECD cited the pandemic as well as political differences. So that was interesting that that political differences aspect didn't get into the communique. So there were no fireworks in that regard, which I was kind of hoping for. But Bruno Le Maire, the finance minister of France, he held a press conference later that same day of the G20 conference and said, basically, France was ready to agree to pillar one and pillar two. It's the US's fault that this is not happening and really places the blame squarely on the United States for this. So in response, France said, we're going to resume collecting our digital services tax by mid-December. And if you recall, the U.S. and France are sort of locked in this dispute over France's digital services tax. When France introduced the DST, the U.S. was very offended because the U.S. thinks the DSTs are discriminatory against U.S. companies. So when France adopted theirs, the U.S. launched a Section 301 investigation into this tax to see if it is discriminatory. And if so, they would go ahead and impose retaliatory taxes on some French imports. The U.S. and France went back and forth for quite some time, and then they finally reached an agreement where they said the U.S. will not impose tariffs and France will not collect the digital services tax on American companies as long as the OECD can get to an agreement by the end of 2020. Now that that's not happening, France is going to resume collection and presumably the United States will follow through on imposing 25% tariffs on $1.3 billion worth of French goods. So if you really need your Lancome, your Louis Vuitton purses, go out there and get them right now because it's going to be expensive starting next year. I should point out more expensive. Right. More expensive. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be very interesting to see what other countries will do in response to this new timeline. And obviously what would happen if the timeline is missed again, which could happen. You know, anything could happen. All right. So at this point, are we any closer to solving the question of taxing the digital economy or have we just effectively kicked the can down the road? There has been some progress since January, but we're definitely kicking the can down the road. And I can't blame the OECD for that, given the coronavirus pandemic and then, of course, some of the political skirmishes that have occurred. I really don't think that it would have been possible for the OECD to have attained a consensus by Monday. So for the progress part, in January, the OECD flagged several unresolved technical and policy issues regarding pillars one and two. They included things like the scope of amount A and new nexus rules for amount A, the quantum of amount A, revenue sourcing, and then dispute resolution and prevention, which has been hotly contested because the OECD suggested mandatory arbitration. And that is something that developed countries have been very hesitant about. Some of those issues have been addressed by the blueprints, but there's still a ton of open issues as highlighted by the public consultation document. And so the Pillar 1 blueprint says that further technical work or political decisions need to be made on the scope of Amount A 
the amount of profit to be reallocated under that amount. Also, the scope of amount B and how baseline marketing and distribution activities would be defined under that amount. And then, of course, the scope of mandatory binding dispute resolution. So as Stephanie mentioned, the Pillar 1 safe harbor issue looms very large. It looms large with the current Trump administration, but it's also unclear how the U.S. might respond to Pillar 1 if President Trump's opponent, Joe Biden, wins the election next month. So that is something that we'll need to play out. Furthermore, on uh, Pillar 2, there are many open questions, particularly as to how Pillar 2 and guilty might coexist, questions regarding the scope of the rules and how the individual components will be designed. So yes, we are definitely kicking the can down the road. There's a lot that needs to be done within these next few months, and we will see how that will play out. All right. Well, it sounds like we're going to have a lot more to talk about in the future. Stephanie, Amma, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks again, Dave. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now from her home is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Faye McRae. Faye, what will you have for us? Thank you, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Matthew Beard writes that a grantor could actually reduce income tax by reacquiring appreciated property transferred to a trust. Jasper Cummings Jr. considers the general welfare exclusion from gross income. In Tax Notes State, Arthur Rosen and Tyler Moses examine dubious opinions and decisions in state and local taxes. Jonathan Williams and Thomas Savage address pension plan reform and what needs to be done to enhance the sustainability of existing pensions. In Tax Notes International, Jeffrey Owens and Bernd Schlenther discuss the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on human trafficking and modern slavery, and how tax administrations, customs officials, and private entities together can address these elements of the illicit economy. Andrew Hughes considers recent movements in the stock market and the challenges tax practitioners face regarding foreign exchange and supply chain risk. And on the opinions page, Joseph Thorndike argues that Wall Street analysts are woefully lacking in making predictions based on fiscal politics, as displayed in their wishful thinking regarding a COVID relief bill. Benjamin Willis and Victor Flesher discuss possible post-election tax reform. You can read all that and a lot more in the pages of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxDo, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast.taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.